0: it's always great to talk to folks who do something similar to what I do, but in a different state. And this morning I'm looking forward to talking to Dr. Will Flanders of the Wisconsin Institute for law and Liberty. I say it backwards a lot. Is it Liberty and law or law and Liberty?
1: You got it right the first time. So good Liberty
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, director of education or, you know, research director for education policy there. And I, uh, I started to say this before we were we were recording. Um, I've been talking about Wisconsin a lot lately because the push that we're trying to really get for Missouri parents this year is open enrollment. And we're really trying to um, help folks understand how open enrollment does not spell the end of public education or the closing of every rural school that they love. And Wisconsin's had a program. So how long have you guys had your open enrollment program?
1: Uh, The Open Enrollment Program started in the 1998 school year, so a little over 20 years now.
0: So, and you guys do such a great job at uh, tracking the students, uh, tracking the data around the students, not tracking the students, but tracking students, putting data out there, and the way you fund it, and the way you fund transportation is something that I've been talking about on several podcasts lately, because I think Wisconsin kind of provides a model. How do you think Wisconsin families feel about your Open Enrollment Program?
1: Yeah. So I, th- I think that, you know, one of the reasons we've been interested in sort of highlighting open enrollment uh, in Wisconsin is, uh, you know, we're, we're a state that has a, a lot of different school choice programs. We have our uh, private school choice program. We have charter schools. Um, open, enrol- open enrollment is often under, understudied and underappreciated, I think. Yeah. And it's also a program that tends to be um, a lot less controversial. Um, I know in states that are trying to implement it, that might not be the case, but here right. it's a lot less controversial than some of our other programs. And so what we try to highlight to folks is this is school choice um, and it's sort of I don't want to say a gateway drug, but let's just say a gateway into sort of broader school choice, because once you accept the narratives around that, um, then you're sort of more open uh, to some of the other school choice options as well. Um, So I think, you know, generally it's very popular with parents. It's actually our largest school choice program in the state of Wisconsin with over 70,000 students um, enrolled. Just for uh, of reference, well,
0: how many students do you guys have?
1: Uh, we have eight hundred and eight thousand students, I think, or around students. Very similar to students. Missouri.
0: Very similar. We're yes. like eight hundred and fifty thousand. So, just for listeners, similar in size, enrollment wise, to Wisconsin. I'm sorry, to Missouri. And you have you said more than seventy thousand. So that's right. Just under ten percent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's so it's a it's the largest. You know, our our voucher program sort of about fifty thousand. And our charters, I think around forty thousand. So we, you know, we like to tell folks it's the largest school choice program in the state, um, and it's grown quite a bit during uh, the pandemic.
0: So then, but like that means twenty percent of your parents get to choose something. It seems like, or your families.
1: Exactly. Yeah. There, there's a good good percentage of folks that are that are choosing all of these different alternatives, and uh, you know, while well, we were you know encouraged, and we'd like to see some of the reforms that we've seen in states like uh, you know Florida. And Arizona, in terms of broader uh, school choice, sort of universal school choice, uh, we shouldn't deny that we have a good baseline here.
0: That's right. Now, how do you think rural families in Wisconsin uh, take up in the open enrollment program? In other words, this is kind of a sticking point in Missouri, like our schools are far apart, we love our schools, but if you let folks leave, everyone will leave, and then these all these po- these wonderful little rural schools will close. Has that happened in Wisconsin?
1: So we really haven't seen that. Uh, we, we still have over 400 school districts in the state. Uh, so, you know, a lot of states have a lot fewer than that. I know Florida uh, is down is 68 school districts with so their county level schools. Uh, but so we still have over 400 school districts. We've seen a couple closures, you know, since the open enrollment program was implemented. Uh, but that's just a handful. I think we've maybe lost five school districts over the past uh, two decades. And that's not necessarily due to open enrollment. That's just due to sort of declining sure. uh, population of students across the board.
0: Do you know, is open enrollment used very much by rural families?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think it, it is used quite a bit uh, in our rural districts. Obviously, if you look at the raw numbers, of course, the largest are, you know, districts like Milwaukee students out enrolling out of the 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 sort of worst performing district in the state. Yeah. Uh, but we do see it in our rural schools as well. You know, one thing we've highlighted in some work we've done in the past is that, you know, we often think our, our urban schools are the are the most struggling, but when you look at the data, uh, you know, oftentimes those rural school districts can struggle just as much in terms of proficiency, in terms of reading. And so uh, we do see parents taking advantage of that and enrolling into better performing uh, rural schools, uh, but not necessarily to the extent that leads to to dramatic uh, declines in the funding of the district.
0: Right. I mean, <clears throat> I know in Missouri with the rural high schools, they tend to have lower ACT scores for A variety of reasons, right? It's harder to have comprehensive high schools and and offer high-level math and science classes and AP classes. And so ACT scores tend to be lower. And then the outcomes after high school aren't better. They are, in many cases, worse in terms of college attendance, uh, even CTE or, you know, career and technical education. So I think that they people love them for elementary school and they do pretty well through middle school and you get to high school and it's just such a different experience than other kids in the state, in the suburban districts.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, folks like to, or sort of opponents of, you know, all forms of school choice tend to say it can't work uh, in rural areas. Right. But I think we, we see uh, with our open enrollment programs in the state that, you know, that's not the case. You know, there are, uh, given the number of districts in the state, there are nearby school districts, um, but, uh, again, it's, it's, it's sort of a, um, general, general positive and not necessarily something that's, uh, that's leading to, uh, to negatives for the the donor districts in this case.
0: Can you please explain how the funding works? Uh, I had Aaron Smith from the Reason Foundation on, we talked about Wisconsin funding directly, and, uh, we talked about how about $8,200 follows each kid, but how does it affect the sending and the receiving districts?
1: Yeah, so the way it works in Wisconsin is we have an amount set in state law for the uh, for the transfer. The, the transfer amount is set in state law, I should say. Um, and for the uh, 2020-21 school year, it was eight one eight thousand one hundred twenty five. I think it's gone up slightly since then. Uh, but we also have amount set in state law for uh, special needs students, which is uh, nearly $13,000 per student. Um, so the way the funding works is that the home district still counts the student as enrolled. So that student receives their... Uh, state and local share of funding their property tax revenue that they'd receive otherwise. Uh, and then effectively the um, the the district that's losing the students, the student is moving out of the district, um, sends eight thousand one hundred and twenty five dollars to the district that's uh, getting the student. Um, and then they're actually able to retain the remainder. Um, and the same goes for the the special needs amount of uh, nearly thirteen thousand dollars. So the the district sends that amount and retains the remainder. Uh, of what they get for the student in wisconsin currently we're at about sixteen thousand dollars per student in state and local funds so that gives you an idea of how much is Mm -hmm. uh, retained
0: okay so they so they count them in their enrollment and that comes with say in an average district sixteen thousand's got to include stimulus money right
1: uh, it, it, that includes the federal money. I, I should, it, yeah. it, for state and local, we're at about, uh, $15,000 per student okay. without, without federal money.
0: Yeah. That's really high. Okay. So we're you, pretty get, high. <laughs> you get $15,000 from the state to that, for that student, and you get to keep counting that student in your enrollment. You keep getting the 15,000 and then you send 8,000 over to the other district. So you get to keep seven instead of getting 15 for that kid, you're still getting seven. You don't have the kid. Then the receiving district, they just straight up get 8,000 or 13,000 on top. So they are theoretically that 8,000 supposed to sort of cover the education of that child.
1: That's absolutely right. Yep. Uh, The, the, uh, And, you know, we've said in the past, we've done some other work uh, besides the reason paper that I did most recently, where we've argued that more money should be transferred, right? You know, we're big on, as I'm sure you guys are, uh, money following the kid through wherever they go to school. So we'd like to see that up to some extent. But I think it's important to highlight that um, this does create sort of a win-win for both the donor district and the receiving district. Um, You know, the district is, uh, you know, the the receiving district is getting a decent amount for adding one additional student, uh, whereas the uh, district that's losing the kid is sort of having more money per remaining pupil. So while in principle, we're definitely supporters of most or all of that money following the student, we do see in the context of open enrollment how uh, this can be sort of a win-win and keep districts on board with the program.
0: Okay, I get that. What if, though, the student is from a high property value District, but they want to transfer out, and um, the state only gives the district maybe three thousand per student. So now they're going to get three thousand, but have to pay out eight thousand.
1: That's a, that's a good question. So so the way it works here, and it's actually the same as our uh, private school choice program. If you're in one of those districts that is uh, getting less state aid. Uh, per student, than the uh, than the amount that's being transferred. Uh, they do take that funding from from an additional amount of state aid. So uh, you could end up with less state aid per student um, in in these districts, though uh, because they're still raising property tax uh, for that student. Uh, theoretically, they still have more money per remaining pupil, though it can be a loss of state aid in that context. Okay, <clears throat>
0: it's just a really hard one, and I think what Missouri's uh, current bill that has passed our house and not yet the Senate does is it just moves the where the child is counted in enrollment so it's just the foundation formula is affected i really like how wisconsin took transfer students out of the foundation formula
1: yeah absolutely i, I think that, that that is the proper approach and it is a complex issue you know especially when you deal with rural districts where the loss of a small number of students can be you know a significant mm-hmm. reduction in state aid i think um Again, you know, principally, we say, well, if you're not if you no longer have the student, then you shouldn't be receiving funds for them. But obviously, uh, that doesn't work when you're uh, speaking with legislators. So you sort of have to uh, think about these issues in more depth.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, that's moves me on to the next topic. I recently uh, wrote a blog about ghost students in Missouri. And then I realized that you wrote about ghost students in Wisconsin. One thing about our. However, we decide to fund open enrollment. In Missouri, you get to use the highest of the last three years enrollment in your foundation formula calculation. And since the pandemic, they've made it four years, which they're even going to continue for next year for some reason. So there's just like this incredible hold harmless, which means uh, if you had a thousand students before the pandemic and then during the pandemic, you know, things fell apart and kids went away and they moved and they started homeschooling and all that, now you're down to 900 students. You keep getting state funding based on that thousand students' For at least three, if not four years, and the same would be true if, in open enrollment, you lose fifty kids, you can just use the enrollment from three years ago. Does that impact this transfer calculation in Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, so I think like every state, every state says their funding formula is the most complicated. I've learned that from you know going to SPN meetings and things uh-huh. like that. I think every formula is is, in, is <clears throat> ridiculously complex. Um, that is the case here as well. It's a little it's a little bit different in that we use the. Um, average of the previous three years rather than the highest. So, so yours is to some extent even worse. Um, yeah, but theoretically, there's still funding uh, sort of legacy funding in the system uh, for three additional years for students that uh, that leave through open enrollment. So you're, you're right about that as well.
0: I mean, I feel like uh, if you're running a private school, you get tuition for the number of kids who show up that year. If you're running a public school, you get all of this sort of, you know, soft landing, hold harmless stuff where you get to keep counting kids even if they're not showing up. I mean, I think think we should uh, just get rid of it.
1: Our recommendation is, you know, we with the miracle of modern technology, right, with computers, we actually can know where every kid is on a daily basis. And obviously we're not going to propose funding kids every day. That'd be a little excessive. But, you know, we have uh, several count dates throughout the year. We think that funding should be much more dynamic and we should fund kids based on where they are, um, at least in segments of the year. I don't think that's too much to ask. And, you know, we use we use the same, you know, anecdotes here, you know, our, our private schools and the choice program and our, our fully private schools, our, our charter schools don't receive funding this uh, this hold harmless. Um, indeed, if you look at private business, right, any other sort of market system, if, if sure. I start shopping at Aldi instead of Walmart, uh, Walmart doesn't get to retain a portion of the money that I used to give them. So I think it makes sense to people. I think it's sort of common sense that uh, the system is a bit antiquated. And uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely on board with uh, similar changes here as well.
0: Now are you hearing anything about what's going to happen <clears throat> with public education finance in the next couple of years because you know there's talk of a fiscal cliff the federal stimulus piece was has been enormous in Missouri and um you know I want to say 4000 5000 per student are you are our superintendents in Wisconsin already talking about what's going to happen when that money dries up
1: yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, you know what we have here—that's a unique situation—is our, our current governor now, uh, Tony Evers, uh, was the former superintendent of right. uh, public instruction, the former head of our Department of Education here. So, um, you know, he's obviously very on board with uh, with more spending, and so we continually hear the rhetoric uh, from the top down that uh, that more spending is needed. Um, in his previous budgets, he's proposed sort of massive expansion, and yeah, in the context of uh, these these fiscal cliffs created by. Um, all of the rounds of federal funding over the past few years, you know, we obviously, you know, told schools, you know, you can't be dependent on this, but obviously they're going to say they were and that they need this uh, funding to continue. Um, In some districts like Milwaukee, it was almost doubling their per pupil spending. Uh, They were getting almost, I believe, $15,000 extra per student um, in federal money. So um, we're we're preparing uh, for those battles and those narratives to take hold here as well.
0: Yeah, I think I've heard the term bloodbath because if you Used, if any if districts used any of that money to hire people they're not going to be able to continue to pay them you know to pay that payroll when the money goes away and I'm afraid that a lot of districts have done that
1: yeah I think that's absolutely the case and I, th- I think it's it's not even uh not even just sort of a uh oh this happened right it's it's strategic and, and they know that uh, they're, they're going to be able to cry poverty when when the time comes because uh, they obviously effectively do that uh, year after year
0: so I know that you guys have put together a school scorecard, some sort of similar to our most school rankings project, except that we have academics kind of on one site, finance on the other, and you can toggle between the two. But I love how you guys have put together academics and finance on the same page for every district. Has that gotten a good reception?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it's arguably the most popular thing we put on our website. Oh, nice. Something we get we get a lot of uh, you know a lot of a uh, lot of clicks, a lot of attention on. Um, And we routinely hear about it from folks even that may not agree with us on a lot of our other work, because what we've done, you know, we do a lot of work and we do a lot of data, uh, you know, statistical analyses. But this website is just straight from the uh, Department of uh, Public Instruction here in Wisconsin. So when folks want to criticize it, we can say, uh, take it up with the, you know, with the public school bureaucracy, (laughs) because essentially all we're doing here is aggregating a lot of different data uh, that public schools already collect. So we have. Uh, spending over the last five years, along with the proficiency. Uh, we have the, you know, the open enrollment numbers in and out of the district um, and a few other data okay. points as well, just to show people the total picture. Um, what we always find, and I'm sure you fi- you find as well, is that folks really don't have much idea of how much we really are spending um, on education in the state. If you ask them, they might say four or $5,000 per kid. Uh, we just want to highlight for folks what we're spending and the uh, generally dreadful results that we're getting for that money.
0: Yeah. And I was looking at it this morning. I was looking at, I don't, you know, I can't speak to every district in Wisconsin as much as I can, unfortunately to Missouri, but um, it looks like some of your highest performing districts, what I thought was interesting is you've got transfers out and transfers in through the open enrollment program. Some of your highest performing districts, they might have 45 transfers in, but they got four transfers out. And that's kind of the point that I've been trying to make with folks is like, it's not about whether it's a good district or a bad district. It's just whether it's a good fit for a kid. So some of the best districts, you still have people taking uh, advantage of open enrollment and transferring out.
1: Yeah, I think that is a great point to make mm. to folks. I mean, we do see that on average, and you know, I had this in the Reason paper uh, that the districts that are, uh, gaining the most in open enrollment do tend to have higher academics. You know, I think that's a, one of the reasons that folks use for, uh, for, for choosing a new school, but it's absolutely not the only reason, you know, sure. there could be safety issues. There could be a brother or sister that goes to school in another district. There could be a, you know, a sports opportunity, right. To, to sure. play on a, on a team, even though we don't necessarily want to always uh, bring that up. we when we looked at that, we found there was no statistical relationships there. So that's very, very minor. But there are a ton of different reasons that uh, folks choose different schools. Number one, I think, is safety, right? You want to have your kid in a safe environment. And yeah. maybe that's not always the best academic school, but it's uh, it's the pr- sort of primary concern of every every parent. So myriad different reasons and not just academics.
0: One more question on open enrollment. What would you say to people in Missouri? What would you say to Missouri legislators? OK, here are some of the things that we're hearing about why they're struggling to vote for open enrollment. It's going to cause districts to advertise. It's going to cause districts districts to compete with each other. It's going to force small districts to close. It's going to ruin public education. Um, what would you say to all of those things in a state that's had it for 25 years?
1: Yeah, so I think we see basically no evidence of any of that, other than potentially what I would argue is a is a positive, is that inter-district competition uh, ought to be considered to be a good thing, particularly for folks that are on. Uh, the, the conservative side of the spectrum, right? We we, we want uh, markets and competition in every other aspect of of, uh, of life, right? We want to see um, the the sort of uh, rising tide lifts all boats narrative. Sure. We see that in our uh, our 20 years of data on private school choice as well, that when private school choice is introduced, uh, public schools tend to improve over time. So you know, while we don't see massive advertising budgets and we don't see districts closing, we do see that the, the rising tide lifts all ships effectively, and that uh, over time schools tend to do better uh, because of the existence of this program. And we shouldn't just be afraid of competition. You know, we're 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 talking about the the stakes for our our, our future generations, and we ought to make sure they're in the the best environment possible, uh, not be tied to these antiquated district borders.
0: Oh, my gosh. I couldn't have summed it up any better than you just <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate you coming to talk to us about it, too, as one of the states that's getting it right on open enrollment. I think I uh, misrepresented you earlier in the podcast. You're the research director at will. And I, I have been really looking forward to talking to you. And it was great. So thank you so much for coming
1: on. Thank you so much for the invitation. You guys have a great day. Thank you.